Good morning, everybody. So we're going to uh, start today with a little game of Bible trivia, okay? Bible trivia. And uh, what we're going to do with that is as follows. Uh, I'm going to ask some questions. Uh, If you know the answer, I'm going to get you to raise your hand, invite you to raise your hand. If you get the answer right, there's public affirmation and praising of you in that. If you get it wrong, there's public shaming, which is what the gospel of Jesus is built upon. So... Uh, it's important we just enact the values of our faith from the very beginning, okay? So, I'm going to ask a question. If you know the answer, just raise your hand, all right? Question number one, how many books are there, and Jill, you can't answer these. How many books are there in the Bible? Yeah. What's that? Oh, man. 66. Props for Christy and the children's ministry right there. All right, question number two, Old Testament. Um, What gave Samson his great strength? God. God did. Very true. God with his hair. God and his hair, which is, is, uh, again, children and youth ministry now is now being uh, publicly... We're just going to go through the staff here. Congregational care. Who wants to offer one there? Uh, question number three in the uh, Old Testament. We get a little, little uh, I don't know if it's harder, but it might be harder. Uh, name me one of Noah's sons. Yes. Ham, young adult program. There we go. <laughs> Everybody. You, y'all didn't get much applause. Y'all are, everyone's like, yeah. All right. Last one, Uh, what is the most common command given in the Bible? There you go, wonderful. All right, the reason that that is the most common command in all of the scriptures is because fear is a primal part of all of our life. It impacts more of our life than we probably can imagine. It motivates what we do and what we do not do. And therefore, God says that and gives that command more than any other. The scripture passage we're going to be looking at today is unique in the Bible because it deals with this most common command. But rather than just giving it, most of the time what we hear is just, don't be afraid. And we're supposed to be like, okay. This is one of the few places where Jesus actually teaches about this command. And says both why we're not supposed to be afraid, but also what we're maybe supposed to do with that feeling and that energy instead. Okay? So the scripture passage we're looking at is from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And I invite you to listen and read along to God's word to us today. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you're not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, 
you of little faith. And do not keep striving for what you're to eat and what you're to drink. And do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this day that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, what questions, what doubts, what hopes, what ideas, what opinions, what politics, what theology, no matter who we are, that we would encounter you, the living God, this morning, and that you would change our lives and make something beautiful out of us in this world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to give two disclaimers about this because we're talking about this idea of fear, which Jesus moves back and forth in these words of fear and worry. He moves back and forth interchangeably here. Uh, Two really important disclaimers. The first is this. Uh, Not all fear is bad, and it's really important that we name that, okay? Not all fear is bad. Uh, uh, Every parent knows this, right? There used to be like loud trucks that would go on streets near our house, and when my girls were little, they'd be scared of them. And there's a part of you going, it's okay for you to be scared of trucks and cars a little bit. Like, I don't want you just running into the road uh, for nothing. Fear isn't all bad. The Bible says that not all fear is bad. It says that fear of the Lord is something that all of us should have. Yes, we've been singing about Jesus our brother and Jesus our friend. God is also the God that places the stars in the sky. The awesome and mighty omnipotent power of God should bring us to our knees in awe. And we shouldn't get too cozy or familiar thinking that we understand God fully. Okay? So reverence, that idea of fear of the Lord is important. So number one disclaimer, really important, not all fear is bad. Biblically. Number two, uh, one of the things that we know about human beings is our, our knowledge increases, uh, which is different than saying our wisdom as human beings is, increase, is increasing, but our knowledge uh, and understanding of science and, and human beings is increasing, is that statistically there are a number of us uh, in this room that hear this, and we are people who chronically worry and have anxiety in our lives. And it's really, really important that if, uh, if, if you're one of us, if you're one of the people that has that, that this scripture and my sermon is not saying to you, if you had enough faith, it would go away. And it's very important that you hear that. Because you might mistaken and think that, and, and that's not what this is saying. God has provided us, and we live in an age where there's technology, where there's medicine uh, that can help us with this. And some of our journey towards not having fear might be taking steps um, uh, like that. And, and I just want to say from the beginning, that's a really important disclaimer as well. Okay? Despite those two disclaimers that are very important... This scripture passage has something vital to say to all of us today. And it's important that you go there in your mind and you ask yourself the question, what does it mean when Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, do not worry so much, do not have so much fear in your life, what does that mean for you? Because all of us have it, and if we don't think we do, it's not that fear and worry is not there, it's just we're not in touch with it. And that's really bad. Those are the two options. 
And so how does fear motivate us, what we do or what we don't do, and how we look at the world? Now, one of the things that Jesus is saying in this passage that's really cool is that fear and worry uh, are reflective of our hearts. And what we fear and what we worry about is usually an unknown future for the things and people we love. The things we worry about can feel like good things or almost natural things because we fear the future, which when we look at the future, we realize we have very little control over. That makes us anxious. And then it makes us anxious for the things and the people we care about. So let me give you some examples of what I mean by that because it, it might help you trigger what are the, how does fear and worry uh, show up in your life? I've had conversations with people uh, recently who have talked about uh, their ill health and that they're battling illness, and they're worried about what it means for their families and their children as their illness increases and what that's going to look like. That's, that's very real, looking at an unknown future and worrying uh, about what this means for the people you love. There are people that I've talked to who wonder if having a baby is something they're going to be able to do. It's not something they can control as you look into the future. There are people who have found their home here in Austin, finally have a job that they like, have a community where they feel like they're growing and growing in their faith, and there has been a corporate takeover, and they have been told that, number one, they may not have that job anymore because of corporate reshuffling, and number two, if they do have a job, they're going to be forced to relocate and leave this community that they love, and they're worried about what what they should do. I got to have my own little journey into that in a very minor way this week is I had my annual physical this week. And I didn't go in there expecting to find anything. As far as the doctors could see in like the blood tests and everything, it looks like I'm okay. But there's that moment when you're sitting in the doctor's office realizing that one day it's going to come back and the doctors are going to go, this isn't actually what we wanted to see. That's going to happen someday. And sitting in that question When I sit there in that office, it brings that feeling, that wondering about the unknown future, which I have no control over. And you worry and you have fear for the people or the things that you care about as you look into that future. What does it mean today for you in your life with your worries, with the things that keep you up at night, with the things you're concerned about in this world, in this country, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, with our children? What does it mean to hear Jesus saying to you, and this is the most frequent command in Scripture, don't worry, don't be afraid. Now, what's cool also about this teaching is Jesus gets into some of the why, right? He teaches on it. Rather than just saying, don't be afraid, he says why. And one of the things he says, and hopefully all of us can hear and grasp onto this today, is he said one of the reasons that you're supposed to know why we're not supposed to have worry and fear in our life is he says that we are to remember to broaden our perspective. He says, look at the the ravens. It's kind of a weird bird to pick. Ravens creep me out a little bit. But uh, he says, look at the ravens. Look at the birds of the air and how God provides them. Raise your head up. Look and get a bigger perspective. Look at the lilies of the field. God provides for them. See, one of the things that happens that Jesus knows is that when you and I become obsessed with worry, when when fear, we just kind of get this very laser-like focus at what is causing us worry. The things, as we look into an unknown future that are hard, and we just look at it, and we look at it, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know how this works out. And as our focus gets tighter and tighter and tighter on that thing, we lose the perspective of what God is doing in the world all around us. 
He's saying, look, raise your head up. Broaden your perspective. Look at the the birds of the air. God cares for them. Look at the lilies of the field. God cares for them. God provides for them. Don't you know that God is active and alive in this world? Don't you know that God loves this world and loves you and loves the things that you care about? No matter what it means for you today to identify what you're worried or what causes you fear, God is not indifferent to any of it. God is active and a part of it and cares about the things that we care about. Jesus is saying, broaden your perspective and see it. See that God is all around rather than just like, I just don't know how this is going to work. The other thing that can happen when we broaden our perspective is that we don't just get perspective on where God's active in the world, but we can also look back on our stories, our lives, and see God active and alive there when we broaden our stories. Because see, when we're just looking at this thing going, I just, I can't sleep at night. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't, what schools are the kids going to go to? How's that? Blah, 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 blah. What happens is we forget this is not the first time we've had worries or cares or fears in our life. It's not the first time in our perspectives that we've sat there and gone, I just don't know what we're going to do. And there's an intersection in the scriptures between memory and hope. Having a good memory makes you a hopeful person. Because you're like, wait a minute, this is not the first time I've been up at night worrying about things, and God has shown up before. Jesus is saying, broaden your perspective, and when you see that and remember your story of how God has been active before, you're going to probably have hope that God's going to be active again. That God has not brought you to this point today going, I provided all the way along, I kept showing up, I kept in my love showing up just to go, what? Now you're on your own because I don't care anymore. But it can feel that way when we just get laser-like focused on this. So why, Jesus teaches, do we not need to have so much worry in our life? Why are we invited into something different? He said, broaden your perspective. See the work. Know that God cares. And see the evidence of it in your own life and in the world all around us. Now that's pretty great. That's something that I think all of us in our lives today could probably start implementing and thinking about today and seeing and raising our head and seeing that broader perspective. But... Jesus doesn't stop there. And I debated in this sermon whether to stop with just that, because that feels like it could be pretty good. That feels like good news, right? But then he has this weird way of turning it and going, and now, instead of just like looking at the, the, the ravens and why he picks those, I don't know, and why the lilies of the field, he says, and now what I want you to do is take that energy that was going into worry, take that time that was going into worrying about the things you couldn't control, and transfer it to now using it to strive for the things of the kingdom, he says. That's his whole twist on it, right? Like rather than just kind of knowing that God's, uh, take that peace that can come from knowing God cares and is involved, and he says now transfer that energy to striving for the things of the kingdom. And this is what I want to finish with. What in the world does that mean? Well, the kingdom of God is like the biggest concept that this world has ever considered. Okay, And we do not have time in the three minutes that we have left to dive into the fullness of what that phrase means. Strive for the things of the kingdom. But that doesn't mean we're not going to try for a second. Think for with me for a second about what some of what that could mean. To strive for the things of the kingdom. Well, first I'll think about that word, kingdom. It's a word that can make us as Americans a little nervous. We're not really drawn to kingdoms. We don't trust it. We don't trust that much power being in one hand, one person or one family or one dynasty's hands. I think that's probably a pretty good rule of thumb. We're more drawn towards democracies and republics and uh, all of this kind of stuff. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. There's no polling stations in the kingdom of God. 
okay? The kingdom of God is, is centered as all kingdoms are. What are kingdoms centered on? They're different than other forms of organizing a society. They're not actually based around values. They're not actually based around ideas or principles. What kingdoms are uniquely centered around and orbit around is a person. They're focused on a king. You can change the values in a kingdom and it's still a kingdom. If you take the king out of the kingdom, you can have all the ideas you want. It's not a kingdom anymore. It's something else. And the kingdom of heaven is just that thing. It is centered on a person, the person of Jesus. And what does it mean then when we see what is the heart of the king? What does it mean to strive for the kingdom? What is the heart of the king, the person that lies at the center of it? Well, in Luke, we've been seeing that. And friends, this is where I want us to to, to start paying attention to, is we're in this six-month journey through Luke, is that's different than usually how we do a sermon series, which is this isolated set of scriptures and an isolated set of scriptures and an isolated set of scriptures. The beauty of when we spend six months, for example, going through a book is hopefully we start looking at threads that unite it and run throughout it. We're going to start seeing themes. You see, Luke is different than John. It's different than Matthew. It's different from Mark. It's not better. It's not worse. But Luke is seeing different things and teaching and emphasizing different things. And so what does Luke say? What are we learning in this study that the kingdom of God is about? What is the heart of the king? What does it mean when he says to strive for the kingdom? Luke is assuming you and I have heard enough now that we're going to have some idea of what that might look like. Well, what we see in Luke, for example, is that the kingdom and the heart of the king have certain uh, principles and, and, and values to it. We see that Luke emphasizes, for example, as we saw in Advent, the prophecies about the stories of the birth of Jesus and of John the Baptist. We see that Luke is the one that gives the most detail on the birth of Jesus. He's emphasizing that is what the kingdom's about because as Eugene Peterson says, Luke is emphasizing that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And that Jesus is with us, that God is not off in heaven somewhere looking down, that Jesus interacts with this world, his love brings him into this world, his grace changes this world forever, that this is the heart of the king that Luke is starting to point to. We've seen it over the last few weeks, this heart of the king, haven't we? We've seen it, that that Jesus asked a question we looked at three weeks ago, and it said, what is the most important commandment? What's the most important thing to do? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you are not doing that, you're missing the whole point. It doesn't matter what are the other 600 commandments you're following. It doesn't matter how long your beard is or not. What matters is, do you understand what's most important? We saw two weeks ago that someone then asked, well, then what is it that, uh, that, that, who is my neighbor? And Jesus teaches his parable in the Good Samaritan. The one that makes it different is not just one who looks at, at the beaten up traveler and goes, oh, this is too bad. This world is just going off the rails. I'm going to be praying for this in sympathy. It's one who in empathy gets off of his horse and binds up the wounds of the other and reaches out to the forgotten and the oppressed and the marginalized and carries them forward in empathy. We see that the heart of the king, if in nothing else, is that this is a kingdom of love. And that love, as we've talked about over and over again, is not a feeling. I don't feel love. Love is an action. Love does, as Bob Goff says. Love is the heartbeat of the kingdom. And it calls us to, as we see in the king, reach out and to love and serve others in this world. The kingdom of God can mean many things. Striving for the kingdom can mean many things. But you don't have the kingdom of God if that's not present at the heart of it. To love and serve those around us in this world that God loves. So Jesus is saying, number one, broaden your perspective. But number two, 
take that energy and ask yourself the question, how do I strive for the kingdom? Who am I called to reach out to love and to serve with the heart of the king? I want to close with just a, a, a quick example, and this is not something where I hope you leave here thinking about this example. Again, the question is, what fear do you have? How do you strive for the kingdom in your life? What does that look like? But I hope this example can help take some of these concepts and make it real for us to consider for you and I here today. I've been reading some lately about um, a figure that I had heard of, but I didn't know uh, very much about. It was a, a leader in the Catholic Church in the really middle of the 20th century named Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day, uh, if you've heard that name before, uh, maybe you know something about her. I've just been reading a bit more about her. She has this kind of incredible story. And it's a story that, that I, I could feel like I can relate to in my own life and in the lives I've seen of others. She didn't grow up in this like uh, very strict Christian or Christian really at all family. And she decided that she was going to live the life of a bohemian that she said. She moved to Greenwich Village in the early 20th century. She uh, wrote. She was a writer. She um, had a pretty um, wild lifestyle, as was not uncommon at that time in that place in Greenwich Village. And she was in the middle of it and was very honest about it all. Until one day her life started to change because she met a gentleman named, it's a phenomenal name, met a guy named Forster Batterham. Isn't that a great name? I'm going to start calling myself Forster Batterham. It's just this like, it like feels like, it, it's like you're sophisticated. I don't think he was, but, um, but she, he was a bohemian too, and they sort of fell in love, and uh, they didn't believe in traditional marriage. They didn't believe in traditional values of family or institutions, but they moved in together. They had a daughter together, and then Dorothy Day, one of the things I love about her is that she's living this life. She had the courage to admit what I think most people don't have the courage to admit is that her life was great and awesome, and she's living in Greenwich Village, and she has this child and she's uh, in love with somebody and she's writing and everything else and she's like, everything's amazing but I'm not really very happy. There's gotta be more to life than this. Most people just kind of like bury that feeling. It's like, well, I'll just consume a little more. I'll change my relationship. I'll find a different job. I'll go live in a different city and that'll change it. Never gets at that, that true source. Dorothy Day started learning about Jesus. She started getting involved with some, uh, some, some different Catholic workers in New York City. And Forster Batterham did not approve of it at all. In fact, he said that he worried about her mental stability because she was pursuing faith. And so one day, he announced that he was leaving and left her and left their daughter and over the next 30 years had very little to do with them. Dorothy Day is now a single mom in New York City trying to figure out faith, and she starts writing about it because writing is what she knows, and she started writing and publishing a little local periodical called The Catholic Worker. Uh, it was something that she just kind of wrote for uh, people in New York City talking about Jesus and talking about how Jesus calls us to care for the poor and what would it look like if we took seriously caring for the poor. Well, The Catholic Worker, this publication starts expanding. People start reading it outside of New York City. People start reading it around the country. People start reading it around the world. And Dorothy Day is the centerpiece of The Catholic Worker. On top of that, what she was writing about, she tried to put into action. She started creating these intentional communities in New York City, talking about what if we actually took the teachings of Jesus seriously and how we care for the poor. It would change and radicalize how we do church in many ways. And so she started living into that and inviting others into that. And then all of a sudden around New York City, these other communities started popping up around the region, around the country, and around the world. And by the 1950s, Dorothy Day is the leader of this global Catholic movement seeking to live out the teachings of Jesus in urban areas around the country, caring for the poor. And in her diary, she says 
that she did not know what stress and pressure was until she got to this point. Because everyone wants something from her, and she's invited to go speak at this, and she should write a little more, and then others are going, no, you should write less and delegate to others. She's trying to start other communities, and people are like, you need to be here, you need to be the one to start it, and others are going, no, 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 you need to delegate and give it away. She's wrestling with all the things as a leader of what you're supposed to do with something that goes viral before anyone who knows that, what that term is. And she's trying to figure it out. She said she wasn't sleeping right, she was having a difficult time concentrating, she was dealing with the worries and the fears of what an unknown future is for herself, for this ministry, and also for her daughter that she's trying to raise as a single mom at the same time. And then one day, in the middle of this, towards the end of the 1950s, she gets a phone call from Forster Batterham saying that he needs a favor from her. And the favor is, is that when he left, he moved in with another bohemian named Nanette, and they had been living together for the last 30 years, but that Nanette had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and Forster couldn't cope with it. And Dorothy was the only person that he knew could help. He didn't want recommendations, he didn't want her, a friend of hers to come do it, he asked if she could come, and in her diaries, she has these wonderful ways of sitting there going, are you kidding me? Like, I am trying to caretake this global ministry and write and these communities and people are looking at me and all of a sudden, you of all people who's walked out on me and our child, you of all people wants me to come and care for of all people this person. And she said that as she prayed about it and she kept being obsessed with what's gonna happen with the ministry, that the words of Jesus started coming to her over and over again, going, maybe the thing to do is trust me with the whole Catholic worker thing, what's gonna happen, but what you know you're called to do is to care for those in need. And so Dorothy Day one day picks up the phone and calls Forster back and says, I'll be there. She leaves Manhattan to the criticism of everybody who said, you are indispensable and cannot go, and she moved out to Staten Island. As soon as she got there, Forster basically left because he couldn't handle it. And Dorothy Day, for several months, lived with Nanette in Staten Island while she died. She passed away on January 7th, 1960. But the day before, on January 6th, this bohemian woman looked at her common-law husband's ex-common-law wife and asked Dorothy Day if she could get baptized. And a few hours before Nanette died, Dorothy invited a priest in who baptized Nanette into the loving arms of Jesus. Somewhere that story, to me, makes me consider what does it mean in my life with the worries and the pressures that are very real to trust that God's in the middle of it and to take that energy and seek to strive for the kingdom, to love and serve the people around us as I know I've been called to do and as you know that you have been called to do. For if we could live this out, what beautiful lives we would be living and what a beautiful world this might be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray 
that you would take us fearful men and women. Fearful not about insignificant things. Fearful for the people we love. Fearful for the things that we care about when we look into an unknown future in this world, in this country, and our families, our friendships. Pray that today we would have the imagination to raise our head and to gain a greater perspective to see that you are at work in this world that you love. And we would take that confidence that knowing that you are here and that we would then transfer it to striving for the things of the kingdom that we would reflect the heart of the king. Lead us and guide us in this beautiful way. We pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.